I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the last book in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi is our text for today. We've been in a study on return, lessons from the minor prophets. And today we come to the conclusion of that study. I hope it's been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. And we're going to focus today on this last book in the Old Testament with a message entitled, God's Name Among the Nations. Spiritual indifference is dangerous. We live in a world in some ways where there's growing indifference and apathy about spiritual things in the church. And if we are not intentional, it's easy to fall into a rut where we're just going through the motions. It's so familiar to us that we're just doing what we know to do, but there's not really a passion about it. And in the Bible, we find that spiritual indifference and lukewarmness and spiritual apathy are strongly warned against. Jesus addressed the importance of having a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's a condition that has been identified uh, with, that comes from driving, and it's called highway hypnosis. It's kind of interesting because we all have probably had this experience somewhere along the way if we've driven very much at all. And you're awake, but the monotony of the trip overtakes you. The onset could be because of wandering thoughts or a boring road or whatever the case might be. But when you snap out of that highway hypnosis, you realize that you've traveled over a stretch of road that you don't even remember you've traveled over. And the condition is that your brain actually does something as it relates to the information that it's getting. Your brain depends on less retinal feedback, which is just your eyesight, and it depends more on the mental prediction of where you're going. And you get in almost a hypnotic type of situation where you may not remember how far you've driven, and your brain switches to this less alert mode. Now, I don't have to tell you how dangerous that actually is if you're not tuned in to what it is that you're seeing as you're driving. But I also probably don't have to tell you how dangerous it is when something happens to you like that spiritually, where you get to a place where you're going through the motions, you're so familiar with the things of God that you're just moving along, doing what you know to do, but you're not really engaged in it. Malachi, the name, means my messenger. He served as a messenger from God to the people, and he points to the ultimate messenger in the Messiah, Jesus. He prophesied somewhere around 450 to 420 B.C. Uh, he was speaking to the generation that followed Haggai and Zechariah. The people were back in the land. This is after the Babylonian captivity. We're now to the second or the third generation after that took place. There may have been some people who were young when the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah, and it's possible that Malachi was speaking to some of them at the same time. And it's about 100 years after the decree from Cyrus was issued that gave them the ability to return from exile. The worship situation was that sacrifices were once again being offered at a temple that had been uh, rebuilt for the most part. The city had been rebuilt. The law of Moses has been reenacted. Uh, God's using the prophet Malachi to confront 
indifference, apathy, and complacency among the people. There's something especially interesting about this book. 47 out of 55 of the verses are spoken directly by God. And that's important because it's more than any other prophetic book. Malachi is revealing their problems with a series of questions that they asked, and their questions served as an indictment against them spiritually. And if you're looking for a basic flow of this book, you have the introduction and the opening verses. Then he calls out the indifference of the priest in the verses that follow. Then he calls out the indifference of the people. And then finally, there's a conclusion with a warning. It's important that the final word of the Old Testament is curse, which is a threat of judgment instead of hope. We have the blessing of the Garden of Eden ending with a warning about a curse. And that curse would come because of sin. The New Testament opens with God's grace and the provision of the Messiah. So we have this last word from Malachi. We have approximately 400 years of an intertestamental period. And then we have the new dawn when the Messiah comes on the scene as Jesus Christ in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God who dwelt among us. Now, I think the key verse in this entire book is chapter 1 and verse 11. And here's how it reads. For my name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I think this is the big idea of, of the message. The love of God leads people to salvation. Salvation should lead to faithfulness. Faithfulness comes from a love response to what God has done and is doing in our lives. Then faithfulness should lead to proclaiming God's name among the nations. So track with me. It's the love of God, which is the motivating factor for all that is good, It's faithfulness in our response to the love of God in our lives. And then part of that faithfulness is proclaiming the name of the Lord among all nations, the name of God among all peoples. Blessing calls for faithfulness. And the word of the Lord appears as an introduction in several of the prophecies to identify it as a revelation from God that comes with authority. And there is a series of seven questions that the people ask. These questions reveal their hearts before God. They weren't really looking for answers. They were only trying to deflect the accusations and justify themselves before God. And what did God want? He wanted what He always has wanted from His people, and that is for them to repent when they've done wrong and return to Him. They were sinful, and the Word of God was not impacting them. To make matters worse, they criticized God publicly. And God wanted to talk to them about their sinful arrogance and their spiritual indifference. So we're going to look fairly quickly at these seven questions that are asked. And these seven questions are not only historically insightful about what was going on among the people of God, but they are directly applicable to us spiritually today. Because they can give us insight into how we view God and how we think about the things of God and what we care about. 
Question number one, how have you loved us? Chapter one and verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? They were dismissive of God's love. And the words, I have loved you, were directed to the people of God. After all, he had raised them up as a nation. He had ruled over them as their God. And we love because he first loved us. And love is at the heart of a covenant relationship with God. By questioning God's claim, Israel exhibited a lack of trust in God. In fact, they failed to love God as they should. Here they were, a hundred years had passed since they returned from Babylon, and the kingdom had not come in in the way that they thought that it would. They were dealing with foreign governors, and there were difficult economic times. The situation was not pleasing, and they needed to repent and return to a wholehearted devotion to the Lord and make sure that they had their faith in the right things. And the love of God was expressed toward them specifically in his election of Jacob and his descendants to inherit the promise. Now this was different from the normal process because normally the oldest son would have received that blessing. But you remember the backstory probably. And Esau uh, was the firstborn and yet God chose Jacob, later named Israel, as the heir. And the words for loved and hated refer to God's choice of one over the other for his purposes. So the words loved or hated here are not to be viewed in the basic sense that we would think about them only as emotions. That's not the limit of what's going on here and what's being communicated. To hate in Hebrew means to reject or to discontinue association. That's what it means. And it speaks of the preference of a particular outcome. And these words are not connected to the eternal destiny of Jacob and Esau in this passage, but rather to God's acts in history toward two nations that descended from them. The verbs in I have loved and I have hated are perfect tense, and they express God's past relationship with Israel and Edom, and it also has historical and present implications for the people. Now, Israel needed to consider what it would have been like had they not been chosen by God. I want to draw a parallel here, and I want you to think just for a moment. What would it be like if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been saved by grace, your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus? What would it be like if you did not know him by faith? How would your life be different if the love of God had not been poured out on you through his son? The Lord cared about these people and the wicked land is contrasted with the holy land the love of God for Israel was evident and also his greatness over the whole earth in fact verse 5 says the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel so the first question ends with a statement about the greatness of God in and beyond Israel I love what J. Vernon McGee had to say about this he said in Malachi the Lord tells Israel how much he loves them his questions reveal their love for him is cold. They think they love God, but their actions show how far their hearts are from him. Through it all, God's love never changes. You can know today, no matter what your situation or circumstance is in life, God's love never changes. He is always the same. 
Now, this is similar to the word that Jesus had for the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. You remember the uh, first letter to the seven churches was to Ephesus, and in it, Jesus affirmed what they were doing, first of all. Remember what he said? He said, I know your deeds. I know you've been working hard. I know you've been persevering. You're, you're not quitting. You didn't grow weary. I know that you're not tolerating wicked men. And all those things were good. They were gatekeepers of truth. But then God says in Revelation 2 and verse 4, through the words of Jesus here, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. What was the problem? They were working hard, but their work was not motivated primarily by love. They were persevering, but evidently some of them were going through the motions. And I ask you today, if you are a follower of Jesus, what motivates you to do what you do for God? Is it because you just know it's the right thing to do? Obedience is better than not obeying. But when you obey and your heart's coming from the right place and your motivation's from the right place, that's that much better. And that's what God desires of us. It ought to be faithfulness in response to the love of God that motivates you to do what you do. God has loved us with an everlasting love. Question number two, how have we despised your name? You'll note here in chapter 1 and verse 6, this is where this question is asked. The issue was their worship was corrupt. God's calling out the priest for despising his name. They were the leaders of worship. You would think that the people that were right up in the middle of worship, the people that were right in the middle of leading people to the very throne of God, you would have thought that they would have been the most devoted people of all. But the Lord saw their hearts, and what he saw was that they were going through a routine and a ritual rather than being sincerely devoted. God knew what was in their hearts, and God knows what is in our hearts as well. They did not even realize the position that they were in. And when called out, they responded with doubt about the situation that they were in. Now, God says that a child should honor his parents. It's one of the, the main premises of uh, the Ten Commandments. And God certainly was the father to Israel. And if they considered themselves to be a son of the Lord, then the question is, where's the honor due the Lord? Where's the glory that is due the Lord? And they were coming and they were offering blemished sacrifices. You remember the kind of sacrifice that God expected and what he required of them. He required of them to bring an unblemished sacrifice. They were to bring their very best. And what were they doing? They were bringing the blind and the lame and the, the crippled and the diseased animals. I mean, these were animals that would not have even sold in the marketplace. These were leftovers at best. Malachi says to them, hey, try offering that to your governor. And he's making a note of just how absurd it was that they were responding to God in this way. If a dignitary or someone famous came over to your house for dinner, you wouldn't bring out leftovers. You'd bring out the best that you had. Would you give a broken toaster for a wedding gift? Certainly not. A sacrifice should cost us something. And the religious leaders should have known better. But here they were. And they're acting like they're doing God a favor. There are a lot of people that act like they're doing God a favor. We're not doing God a favor. We are loving God because he has loved us. 
And I wonder, is there any area in your life where you're giving God your leftovers? You're giving him less than best? He calls every follower of Jesus to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Your devotion matters, but your motivation matters as well. What you do matters, but why you do it matters as well. Question number three. How have we defiled you? Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? Now, as I've already noted, the priests, they're bringing the sacrifices, uh, and it's their responsibility to uphold the dignity and the honor of the sacrificial system. The priests were to teach the people to honor God, and it's important to note that the sacrificial system was never intended to be an end to itself. It was always a foreshadowing. Had to be done over and over again. But it was pointing to the once and for all sacrifice in Jesus. And if the sacrifices they were offering in real time were a foreshadowing that were pointing to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, then why would you think that if Jesus is going to offer the perfect and complete, the once and for all sacrifice, that somehow you could get by with just getting by. And God says they defiled him because of their response to him. God holds leaders to a high standard. And Malachi uses the phrase, my name, at least eight times. And it's used to convict the priests that they were neglecting what ultimately mattered. God's name is not just a label. It represents his character. God's name represents who he is. And that's why it's so important, why God says in his word that we're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain because his name matters. It honors him. And there are two verses in the Old Testament where the phrase, the Lord's table, is used. It likely does not refer to the table on which the bread of presence was placed. It may refer, rather, to the altar of burnt offering. And I say that because Malachi has already mentioned that and he speaks of the animal sacrifices so I think it's a more general reference to the altar of sacrifice and the word defiled is also translated as polluted now we have a concept of what the word polluted means we know that something's polluted uh, is not good not meaning that it was decaying but rather that it did not meet the ritual requirements of the law so what they were doing is that they made the Lord's table contemptible by disregarding the kinds of sacrifices that the Lord was expecting. And it deepened because some of them were even eating these unacceptable sacrifices. Remember that the priest actually lived off of and received their food from the offerings under the law. And contemptible is also translated as despised, treated with scorn, treated flippantly or casually. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said this. He said, and he's speaking in terms of 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 pastors ministers who have similar but different roles from priests and he says in in the puritan pastor his book but consider plainly that the great and lamentable sin of ministers of the gospel is that they are not fully devoted to god they do not give themselves up wholly to the blessed work that they have undertaken to do now that's not just those who are in formal roles of ministry but it's any of us we're all ministers before the lord ultimately if we're in Christ. So, so I wonder, in your life, 
are you giving your best to the Lord? Are you giving yourself up wholly to the Lord in service to Him? Or are you just going through the motions? The priests in Malachi's day had both privilege and responsibility. They were members of the tribe of Levi. They were descendants of Aaron. Now, under the, the new covenant, we know that the Bible teaches that we are all accountable as priests. The idea of the priesthood of every believer is significant. We are a holy priesthood, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. We are heirs of the kingdom of God, and we ought to take it seriously. We, we ought not to be lukewarm about this. We ought to be excited about this. There ought to be some, there ought to be some spiritual fervor about it. Like, we ought to actually believe what we say we believe, and we ought to actually seek to do what God has called us to do as Christians. It should be something that is real and present in our lives. Question number four, how have we wearied you? Chapter 2 and verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and is delighted, he is delighted with them or else where is the God of justice? Now I think you probably know the feeling of wearying another person. Or maybe you never weary anybody but other people weary you and you'll get it in that regard. Um, and none of us want to do that to other people but we also don't want to do it to God. And it's like we can just offer these words. It's like word salad. You know, prayer can even be like that. Where we're just offering these word salads to God, but they don't really connect because we're going through the motions. But what about when we pray God's word back to him and we're engaging in a level that this, we're filled with the spirit and we're desiring to, to know the Lord better and for our lives to change and for our service to him to be useful. And that should be our heart's desire. To be wearied means to be grieved or to have your forbearance tested. And it's used here in the sense of being frustrated. So they're complaining, wearied God. The prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous is an old problem. In reality, the wicked and the righteous suffer because of the fall of man. But sometimes Christians tend to get this attitude, oh, poor me. Nobody else has got as bad as I've got it kind of get that mentality in the psalms when you read through the psalms because it's a common problem that they were addressing where they were seeing people and nations around them that seemed to be doing really well you're like god why are those people doing so well i'm over here i'm serving you i'm doing what i'm supposed to do and it just seems like it's so difficult and god makes it clear here that he will not tolerate sin perpetually in any form because he is holy and perfect and they called this into question. They were discouraged when they thought wickedness was thriving more than righteousness. They doubted. They lacked faith. They grumbled toward God. And the skeptics were thinking that God delights in evildoers. But listen to what Isaiah 43 and verse 23 and 24 says. You have brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or, offered me, or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with incense. But now listen to what verse 24 says. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God will judge the wicked. People will be held to account. If we are in Christ, our wickedness has been judged in him. Because the penalty was laid on him. 
Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 12 and 13 says, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. However, listen to verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 8, It will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent toward God. So the charge that somehow God was allowing the wicked to prosper, that was misplaced. It wasn't true. God wasn't just turning a blind eye and letting it go. The charge that somehow he was allowing them to, to get by with it was false. And I think one of the things that God was reminding the people through the prophet is the main sin you need to be aware of first and foremost is your own. You don't need to worry about it. Hey, I got enough to worry about on my own. I don't have to worry about everybody else's all the time. I've got to first think about myself and my relationship with God. Am I where I, am I, where I need to be? And then question number five. How can we return? Well, in chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, Since the days of your ancestors you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? They fell so low, either they didn't in part know how to return to God, but you know what I think the bigger problem was? They didn't want to. Did you know ultimately people do what they want to do? They do. Every day we wake up and we make decisions. We do what we want to do. Now, we get ourselves in a predicament and we want to point to somebody else and we want to blame somebody else for the actions that we've already taken, but people do what they want to do. And when people do what they want to do, what they're actually doing is they're revealing who they are. It's a direct connection. You can't have one without the other. And if we are faithfully serving the Lord then that's going to reveal that we are with him and for him. But if we're not, God says to us, repent. Turn from your sin and turn toward God. Verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. Now you remember, if you know a little bit about your Bible, that Israel had this long history of turning away from God time and time again. And what was the message to them every time? Repent, come back. Get back over here to where you need to be. And return to me carries the idea of turning back or coming to a place that you have experienced before. And God calls them to a place of wholehearted obedience and devotion to the Lord. And maybe that's the message that you needed to hear here today. That you came to worship and you're hearing about the things of God. And maybe you came because you got invited. Or maybe you came because the Spirit of God prompted, prompted you to. And you know that you're not where you need to be with the Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus, the message to you is return, repent of where you are and come back to where you need to be. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you've not been saved, you've not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the message to you is repent and believe. Trust in him by faith. And Jeremiah 24 and verse 7 says, I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God and they will return to me wholeheartedly. So here's the entire message of Malachi. It points this way, how to get right with God. And in spite of our proclivity to wander into sinful disobedience, God is faithful to draw us back. Maybe there was a time when you were close to God, 
but that's no longer the case. It's easy to get caught up in a whole host of things, the cares of this life, and not be where you need to be with the Lord. God ends up taking a back seat in your life. And I'm here to tell you today, that's not what he intends for your relationship with him. Returning to God begins with an honest consideration of all that is going on in your life. And if you have sin that needs to be confessed, you ought to confess it. Be honest with God, spend time daily in prayer and the word, and be thankful for all that he has done for you. Question number six, how do we rob you? Now we come to chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. This verse begins with astonishment. Can you imagine anyone trying to rob God? It seems inconceivable. And yet that's what God calls the Israelites out on here. They're not accused of being stingy. They're accused of actually robbing God. They were robbing God in terms of tithes and offerings. They were robbing God and showing ingratitude and also not supporting those who were serving them before the Lord in worship. Here was a people who owed everything to God, and yet they still robbed what was rightfully His. Now, what is a tithe? A tithe is a tenth of the increase. An offering is anything beyond that. The law called for a tithe or a tenth, and then when people held it back, that's how God saw it. We are not under the Old Testament law today. However, the measure of devotion is certainly not less. And usually that's the mentality that people are going with when they start arguing, oh, we're not under the law anymore. That's usually followed by, I want to qualify why I'm not generous and why I'm not faithful what the Lord has entrusted to me. We are under grace, period. In this, out of a love response to God, He deserves the best of our time, our talents, and our treasures. It's comprehensive of all of life. Money is an easy one to measure, uh, just by nature of what it is and how it's used. But this relates to the totality of your stewardship before the Lord. I think of the words of Jesus in Luke 6 and verse 38, where he said, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let me suggest several stewardship principles to live by that I think will be helpful for you in thinking through this. First, God owns it all. We get this mentality sometimes, oh, I'm going to give back to God what belongs to Him. Well, if that's the case, you're going to give it all back because it's His. He gave it all to you. He gave you the strength to do what you do. 
He gave you the mental capacity to think how you think. He gave you the education and the experience that you have for a reason. And he gave it for your good so that you could live it for his glory. So if you begin with the mentality that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and you have a heart of Psalm 24, then that's going to be your foundational principle. Then God calls you to be a faithful manager. That's what a steward is with what he's entrusted to you. If you have a manager who's working for you, you're a business person or uh, you have some other reason why you're working with a manager, you're not just going to give the manager everything that you possess and then just say, do whatever with it. I'm never going to ask you or check on it again. That's not how it works. A manager is going to be held to account. And God will hold us to account for what we've been entrusted with. He wants us to be faithful. And generosity is always the best way to go. I promise you, when you if you go through your life, I promise you, this is a promise. And the Lord says here, even test him. If you will live your life generously, you will not come at any point in your life to the place where you say, I really wish I'd have been less generous. You know, I, I really just wish I'd have done less and spent less time serving the Lord. And I wish I would have just kept that spiritual gift and not applied it. And I wish I wouldn't have given that, those funds that I gave for the Lord's work. It's not going to happen because generosity is always the best way to go. And if you are not currently living a generous life, you got to start somewhere. you got to find a place that you can start and say, Lord, I'm going to entrust this to you out of a life of grace living, and I want a place to start that I can grow in my faithfulness and obedience. And you ought to last give as you've purposed in your heart, generously and joyfully. I am a big believer in grace giving. I don't think anybody's motivated very You can motivate people by guilt for a little while, but it won't last. It, it won't hold up. But if you motivate people by grace and they begin to see the beauty of who God is and what he's done and, and the beauty of a, a life that's lived out of grace, then it's a totally different motivation and it'll cause you to be generous and joyful. And you won't be doing what you're doing simply because you're guilty. You'll be doing it because you know that it honors God. I'm very thankful for the generosity of the people of this church in so many ways. We've got room to grow. And we want you to grow in your generosity because it's an aspect of your discipleship. And if you miss it, your spiritual growth is going to be uh, stunted and short-circuited. Question number seven. What have we spoken against you? Chapter 3 and verse 13, that the question is asked. Well, they spoke against God, and then they doubled down. And it's something when people do something like this, and they, they speak against God and then pridefully maintain their innocence. That's what these people did. There was a subtle suggestion that God was not keeping up his end of the deal. Listen, if you ever make a suggestion, subtle or otherwise, that God's not keeping his end of the deal, you better back off of it because there's never been an end of the deal that God didn't keep. He's always faithful. 
even when you can't see it and you can't see the outcome and you can't see the end of the story. Listen, some of you are discouraged right now in the middle of your story because you're caught up in the middle of your story. You can't see beyond that. And I'm here to tell you today, look beyond the immediate circumstances and believe that God will be faithful in your life. Don't give up on him because he's not giving up on you. And he's promised that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And here they were, disobedient, but they're complaining about God. This was an act of disrespect toward God. The word translated literally means strong, but they were arrogant. So they weren't just complaining. This was blasphemy. And this is major. And they said it's futile to serve God. I think the reason they felt like it was futile to serve God It's because their worship and their service were empty. It's going to feel like that. If there's no spiritual power, if there's no no fervor in your life, if there's no excitement about the things of God, if there's no desire to get to know Him better, and you're going through the motions, well, yeah, it's going to seem basically futile. Why am I doing this? But if you know the Lord and you're filled with the Spirit, you're guided by His Word, even when you don't feel like it, You'll be near the Lord, and He'll be near to you. And if you're tempted to think your service to God is futile, this chapter is for you. Look at verse 16 in chapter 3. Verse 16 in chapter 3 says, At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. Verse 17, this will, they will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I'm preparing. I'll have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. Now, this is striking to me uh, where it says the Lord took notice and listened. Is that not what we desire? That the Lord would take notice and listen to us the book of remembrance is mentioned here now God doesn't need a book to remind him of what he does this book is representative now I need all sorts of things to remind me of what I need to do there are too many moving parts it's too dynamic and my memory is just not as good maybe at times as it should be but I've got written calendars and I've got to-do lists and I've got weeks at a glance then I've got this electronically and then I got to back up to the backup I mean, I, I got to know where I'm not going to be where I'm supposed to be. That's the bottom line. And occasionally, I still am not even uh, because of that. that. God's not that way. Nothing ever occurs to him. He never forgets. He, he doesn't grow weary, ultimately. But this is an illustration because kings in those days kept books of remembrance. You know what they put in those books of remembrance? Primarily, honorable deeds were recorded. And when you think your service to God is in vain know that God remembers what you have done for him he remembers your work he remembers your words and he remembers your worship your sins will be remembered no more because they were dealt with at the cross but I want you to know that loyalty to God does not go unnoticed and loyalty to God will not go unrewarded Let me say that again. Loyalty to God does not go unnoticed, 
and loyalty to God will not go unrewarded. Now there's another book mentioned in the scripture and that's the Lamb's Book of Life. You want to be sure that your name is there because it speaks to those who know God through his son Jesus. Chapter 3, back in chapter 3 in verse 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, of course, John the Baptist would be the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus. God promised that he would not leave us uh, as uh, sinners in our condition, but he would come to us and he would die for us. But the messenger, John the Baptist, was to point to the ultimate messenger from God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews chapter 1 makes it clear that God has spoken in various times and in various ways in times past. But he has preeminently spoken through his son. Jesus is the message of God to us. Now chapter 4 and verse 2, and I'm going to come to a close. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Now I'm going to give you an illustration here that I think will resonate with you as as we think through this closing part of Malachi and especially the fact that Malachi closes the Old Testament and then we have this 400 years of the intertestamental period. Malachi brings down, as it was, the curtain on the Old Testament. He is the last in a long line of prophets who foretold with increasing tempo about the coming of the Messiah. He's sort of an announcer for the Lord. His name, as I already told you, means messenger itself. But imagine him saying, the next voice you hear will be John the Baptist 400 years from now. The message from the messenger about the ultimate messenger is clear. Hang in there. Jesus is coming. That's where Malachi is coming to. Hang in there. Jesus is coming. And you know what? The message resonates with us today because it's a present future message. That Jesus came the first time, but he's coming again. And when you look around you and all of the darkness and all the confusion and all of the decay and of the decay in culture and society, and you wonder what's going to happen next. It seems like the wicked are prospering and, and, and we've got these questions for God. And the message to us from the word of God is hang in there because Jesus is coming. And from the rising of the sun to its setting, may the name of God be exalted among the nations. And that's our privilege and our responsibility that we would make the name of God exalted among the nations. And when churches get off track and they lose their effectiveness is when they forget that this is the main thing. It's when we digress into a holy huddle and we get saved and we get into fellowship and we begin to think that we were somehow the last ones by our actions. We're not the last ones. The work of God is dynamic. The church is growing, it's moving, it's, it's shaping, it's gathering, it's reaching, it's evangelizing. Why? So that the name of God will be exalted among the nations. And one day, 
we're going to gather around the throne of God and there's going to be people there from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we're going to have one thing to proclaim. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is to be exalted for all of eternity. But in the meantime, he's to be followed by faith now for his glory. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray and come toward a close of the message and the service. How are you today spiritually? Are you in Christ? If you are, you've got much to be thankful for. Would you take a moment and just thank Jesus for the good news, for forgiveness and everlasting life? How are you spiritually in your devotion to the Lord? Are you where you need to be? If you're not, the message to you is the message we've heard throughout these minor prophets, and that is return. Maybe there's a step of obedience or faith that you need to take. If you're not in Christ, the Bible says if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Say, Pastor, I want to be saved today. If you'll repent and you'll believe in Jesus, you can be. You will be. Ask the Lord to help you. Know him and walk with him by faith.